are tuning in to the online broadcast network, AfterBuzz TV. Over 20 million weekly downloads in over 150 countries and your number one source for after-show entertainment. Oh, AfterBuzz TV. AfterBuzz TV, the destination for TV superfans. Producing aftershows for over 300 of your favorite TV shows. Interviewing celebrities and showrunners. And bringing you behind-the-scenes exclusives. All thanks to E! Entertainment's Maria Menounos, producer Kevin Undergaro, and internet leader Akamai. Now, let the buzz begin! Hello, everybody. Welcome back to AfterBuzz TV's Manhattan After Show. We are here doing Season 1, Episode 10, the understudy. Now it looks like I'm all by myself here in the studio, but it's not just me, your host Marissa Serafini. I also have my amazing co-host on the line, Bobby DeMiro. Hey Marissa, what's going on? I will be back in a week. I promise, I think you swear, I swear to God, I'll see you in, in person in seven days, but I'm here. Now, no worries. I mean, Team Bobby Marissa still figures it out. So, Bobby, what were your overall thoughts of the understudy episode, real quickly? Well, real quickly, let's talk about the title first, the understudy. We hear about Meeks talking about the whole show rests on the understudy when he's talking about being in, in the play, in the production. But other than that, Marissa, also the question back at you, besides the, the small mention with Meeks, why was this episode called The Understudy? Who, who is The Understudy right now? Is it Charlie? Who is it? And that's my question, too. The Understudy. The meaning of Understudy usually means, like, backup person. If you go back to theater, The Understudy is the backup person if the lead person can't fill the role that, during that performance. So The Understudy steps in. My theory is that they're just using the meaning and the principle of The Understudy compared to these projects that they're going on. We know Akeley's team was mostly Project Thin Man. That was the first primary project. And then the backup would be Team Implosion, which would be yeah. Frank's team. So I think the understudy is Team Implosion, Frank's backup project plan. And they need to be ready to go, just like Meeks has to be ready to go, because the whole show rests on the understudy. I agree with that. I think that's right. I definitely agree. This was a really good episode. I'm really enjoying this show. And so much is happening, and we do have a good breakthrough with Team Implosion. We'll definitely get to that. But let's just start off with Sid Lau's story. I mean, we saw Sid Lau in the first and second episode of the season. We didn't really get a lot of time to delve into Sid, La Sid Lau's life, but to pretty much re- uh, put a cap on this whole story we have Sid Lau's wife Annie Lau she comes to Los Alamos to try to find out answers because not even she knew what went down in this project Manhattan area and a lot of people weren't honest with her were you surprised that they were going to bring Annie into the story I, I'm not surprised that she tried to come. I think it was the right thing for her to do, and I think we probably would have might have done the same thing in her situation. What I'm surprised with is why the military police, why that first MP ever entertained her. She said, you know, I have to come in, I have to speak with Frank Winter, and he's like, you know, whatever, go away. And she said something to the effect of, oh, well, I bet I'll find a reporter who won't tell me to go away. And it's like, if the military is just secret about the Manhattan Project anyways, What's the difference if she goes to a reporter? They can just deny, 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 and make her look crazy. 
you know. So why why even let her into the facility in the first place? Just just deny her and keep her out. You have no you have no reason to let her in. That's what I was confused about. As secret as you are, why let her in? As far as you're concerned, she's the wife of a spy, anyways. Don't have her you know don't have her come anywhere close to the facility. And that's true. And I think also. A lot of people in that area didn't know Sid Lau's character and if he was a spy or not. That was confidential information. So I'm thinking the man that was doing the security at that time and she was threatening to go to the reporters. I mean, she could go to the reporters and they could do nothing or it could be enough of a spark to bring people to Los Alamos to question everything and that's just a huge, you know, um, problem that they would have to face in the future if Annie went that route. So yeah. I, I think it was just smart of Annie just to get any way into the compound to talk to Frank Winter about uh, Sid. And I think I think it was smart on Annie's. I love I love the fact that they gave her the name Annie. Um, it could have been any name because they are Chinese. And but it shows that even with an Amer- uh, American name such as Annie, makes me less question less about Sid being a spy, but more so just another American citizen who was just doing wrong things. I, that's interesting. I never even would have thought about her name and what that means in, in terms of that regard. I would have thought it would have been an immigration situation. I don't know how long she's been in this country or how long her family had, but a situation where they just you try to Americanize very quickly and give somebody a very American name to sort of help them Americanize. And I would have thought that that was just kind of, I took it for granted, that of course her parents did that, and Sid was named Sid for the same reason, you know. Of course their parents did that, or whomever did that, and that's that was them trying to be Americanized. But maybe you're right. Yeah, and also I noticed the fact that Annie had an American accent too, so she was very American citizen at this point. So it still begs the question, how much was Sid a spy, or if he really wasn't? I, yeah, but I think it's still, you know, it's, it's the look test, especially during that time period. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Sid looked different. He looked like a, a member of a different group. You know what I mean? And, and obviously, you can't judge a book by its cover, but guess what? This was wartime in the 40s, in World War II, in a stressful period of America. The, knowing what happened with internment camps, they didn't care about that. They were, they were going on the look test. And when they started getting suspicious of Sid, and then he was different and quote-unquote not like a you know, stereotypical American, it's easier for that hammer to fall, I think. And therefore, it's easier to cast suspicion on him and, and by extension on Annie. Yes, I, I completely agree. But what did you think of the unintentional interrogation once Annie gets into the place and then she's being questioning by a man who she thinks is Frank Winter, but we know he's just the interrogator, and he was asking a lot of questions. You know, that guy, he's not as good at what he does as I think we thought he was. Um, Early on, the first couple episodes, I know we were both a little intimidated by him because of the way he was with Frank and Sid, but seeing him in this episode with Annie, and then again later with Meeks when he shows up at their lab, you know, their janitor's closet, um, this guy is not... He's a little ham-handed, you know. He's a little—he's too—he's too far over the top on it. He's a little too suspicious, and he's a little too over. And the, the interrogation questions were obvious. She learned he wasn't Frank Winter within 15 seconds, you know. And she—and he easily could have kept the facade up or gone into it a different way or whatever it is. And he didn't do that. And then he kind of did the same thing with Meek. So this guy, who a few episodes ago I was intimidated over because he seemed powerful, I think he could be a weak link. 
because he's so he's so ham handed. He's so you know he, he he's not he's not very smooth. <laughs> and no. I think that maybe that could I don't know how and maybe it's a prediction kind of. But I don't know what'll happen. But I think it could kind of come back to bite him in the ass or bite the government in the ass because he's just so. He's so over the top. He has no chill. You know what I mean? As the kids say today, he has no chill. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, over the top. I definitely agree. He's not being subtle whatsoever. He was already suspicious from the start. But he is asking all the right questions to the point where I'm even questioning him because he is a little shady. Maybe he's posing as an American citizen, trying to posing as an interrogator and interrogating all these people just to get answers for his country. Maybe he's a spy himself. You're saying he's like a double agent? Double agent. I don't know if that's going to be too deep for this show. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but I wouldn't put it past Manhattan that if they did. Maybe. All we can do about him is see. I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, but again, he was asking a lot of the right questions to the point where... Now even Annie is um, has believed that Sid was a spy because his files were completely sealed and whatnot. But we we ended with Annie on the bus, and Meeks goes up to to Annie to really probably just get some proper closure on this story, knowing that his close friends and coworkers didn't think he was a spy, even though everyone did. Yeah, yeah, and getting that reassurance that he was a good man. Although there was there was just a little a little a little wrinkle, I guess we can call it there. When Meeks is talking to her on the bus and she says, "Hey, tell Frank that he doesn't have to send any more money because he feels guilty," and and we, Meeks didn't really understand that. Why would he feel guilty? And there was kind of a disconnect there. And I, I don't know what it means right now, but maybe that'll come back with Meeks because we know how Meeks was left at the end of the episode with this interrogator. We know that Meeks may have flipped on Frank in some way. Yeah, I mean, it's very questionable. So, But I th- I did just love this touching moment with uh, Meeks and Annie just to I'm pretty much reassure the audience that even though Sid may have done questionable actions, he still, deep down, was a good guy. Yeah. 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 Okay. But that, I mean, that kind of goes into, I mean, throughout that whole, you know, process, Dunleavy actually helped um, inform Meeks that this was all going down. So good on Dunleavy's part because he was the one responsible for Sid's death. And I think throughout this whole season, we just see moments where Dunleavy's trying to do any good actions to atone his guilt for killing someone yeah. the way that he did with Sid. But, well, I, I don't even know how to feel about Dunleavy yet. I mean, what do you, what do, you do with, with Sid's death moving forward at this point, does anybody ever get closure on it, or do you just kind of move on and say, okay, this is a crazy time, we just have to move to the next thing? Yeah, I think they they closed out Sid's story, but they didn't close out Dunleavy's guilt over that, um, because we even see in the the bunker where his sleeping arrangements, where he's, uh, you know, staying at with all the other guys, that, you know, they still call him, um, I forget the term, but the the killer, the because he the spy kills, killer. Yeah, spy killer. Um, because he kills he killed Sid. But all the all this time Dunleavy's still questioning the morality of everything. What did you think of their his conversation with Callie over everything that they're doing? 
Well, I don't, you know, I'm kind of torn on how to feel about it. Dunleavy is obviously kind of an idealistic young man. That's kind of the role he's playing, both in war and in love, obviously. Um, and idealism isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just, you know, idealistic. It's not necessarily realistic. So I kind of look at Dunleavy as a little bit ignorant to the way the world works, a little bit, you know, closed off to reality and, and, and the fact that life is not as maybe great and simple and moral as he thinks it is. But I also look at Dunleavy and say maybe more people should be acting like Dunleavy. You know, he's he's a mm-hmm. better example. He's a good example for Callie, for example. While Callie's kind of trying to bring him down, he's trying to bring her up, and, and she maybe needs to, you know, take her medicine on that. She, she could stand to follow his lead as opposed to the opposite. Yeah, I agree, because we know from these past episodes, and even twice tonight in this episode, that Dunleavy's a fairly religious man, or he he quotes the scripture so often. And because even tonight when he was talking to Meeks and giving that information, he he said the line, um, as I read my notes here, that um, it's, it's about, you know, he's questioning just everything that's going on. And this, this passage, let us lie down in our shame and have disgrace cover us. So, again, it's just going back to the whole warfare that they're all going on. These men know what's happening, but no one else knows. Can they live with their actions? Yeah. Well, uh, it's, uh, Dunleavy has a lot of guilt, and he should have a lot of guilt. I don't know. I mean, I know he did what he was supposed to do, and we've, we've talked at length about him. But he's got a lot of guilt, and we talked about this, Marissa, weeks ago, that it was going to come back and haunt him, you know, whether you want to call it PTSD or whatever it would be. Mm-hmm. Something like that's going to come back and haunt him, and here we go. We're, we're starting to see the seeds of that sown, correct? Yes, absolutely, and we're seeing it now, and he's even questioning it in his relationship with Callie. You know, what do you see in me? Um, is it just because you like me just because I killed someone, or do you really like me just as a person? And then we see at the end of the episode with his story that Callie gives him the Bible. The, in the passage of um, the, the letter of St. Paul to the Colossians. And, and also Callie's handwritten note in the Bible saying, I like you because it makes me think that someone's listening. What did you think yeah. of this? I thought that was a cute thing, and I think Callie finally finds somebody to take her seriously. Her parents see her as a child still, obviously. That Girl Scout thing is one example, and I know the parents kind of laughed about that. But just, just having her do kind of the base activities and the Girl Scouts and whatever, Callie's at that age where she sort of sees herself as a woman, and you've got her parents and everybody else around her that we can tell sort of sees her and kind of babies her and shelters her. And Dunleavy, while he definitely, you know, isn't a man yet, Mm-hmm. He also gives her the time of day and lets her talk. And Callie has kind of come out to Dunleavy as this, like, artistic, you know, book reader, cultured woman of the world, even though we know that's crap because she's, like, 16. But she's sort of come out to him like that. And I think Dunleavy kind of bought it hook, line, and sinker, for better or worse. And now you're at a point where Callie sort of thinks, hey, I like the way this feels. I'm finding my voice. And Dunleavy is giving me my voice. So thank you for listening. You know, that's... That's, I think, what's going on with her. Yes, and I, I completely agree. And I think another interesting um, element in this story was that it was written specifically on the St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, which I don't know, Bobby, if you know of the scripture, 
but that whole passage is about morality. Mm-hmm. And I, I find it very, very fitting that they purposely put that there. And because and I'll just paraphrase pretty much the, the whole passage, but it's, it's pretty much saying that the humankind is created in God's image. But because we're human, we're going to have flaws and we're going to do actions that we're going to question. But on um, specific lines like, wives be, um, be subject of your husbands, but that's fitting in the Lord's eyes. And children obey your parents because that pleases the Lord. And also servants obey all things that your masters are telling you to do. Even though you might not like it, you're still in the bigger picture, you're serving the Lord. So it's pretty much reflecting the whole stories and the realities that, and everything that the questioning, all these actions that we're doing is for a bigger picture. We may be questioning it now, but it's for the the better of everything in the end. Which is the the really the greatest message from this entire show in every storyline, isn't it? That's that's kind of what it's all about and always been about. Yeah, I thought it was so incredibly fitting. Thank you, Manhattan, for that smart element into it, and you know, just seeing it from both Callie's perspective and Dunleavy's perspective. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else on that before we move on? Um, well, I mean, it's, it's only a matter of time until Callie and Dunleavy have sex. Let's face it. It but, is. You know, until then, we can just talk about the sex that's going on between Abby and Elodie. <laughs> yes. Okay. I mean, we've seen it in the last couple episodes. Abby's definitely questioning her rela- her budding relationship with Elodie. But now it seems it has really escalated to the point where... Again, Abby's questioning everything in morality, and and this is this right? Is this wrong? Is this an affair? Are we cheating on our husbands? And what did you think of Elodie's um, response to all of this? Uh, I think Elodie is in such a state that she can rationalize to herself what she's doing. Cheating is cheating. An affair is an affair, even if it's with a woman, even if it's in the situation on the base, whatever it is. If you commit to somebody in a marriage like that, you need to honor that. And if you if you don't want to honor that, then just don't get married and don't commit. And I know that's overly simple, and, and people can say, oh, it's more complicated than that. It's really not. No. And to me, Elodie is, Elodie is immature, obviously, and she wants to have her cake and eat it too and stay with her husband because of whatever and security and the times, but she also wants her affair because she, quote, puts up with her husband. You know, if you if it sucks to put up with him, leave him. You know, put your money where your mouth is and leave him, but you won't do that. And so Elodie, to me, is kind of a... She's just rationalizing what she's doing. She's saying, oh, it's okay. My husband's marriage isn't great. He's not a great person. He groped you, Abby. He's a bad person. So we're allowed to do this. It's like, no, you're not. You need to be the bigger adult at one point in your life. You won't do that. And now you've dragged Abby down with you. You know, Abby was a nice woman. Yes, she was sheltered, but she was a nice woman coming into Los Alamos. And now, Elodie, you're making her into a bit of a, you know, whatever word you want to fill in there. Well, I, yeah. I, I can see where you're going with this. I feel like Elodie, she's way more liberal and Abby is way more conservative. But the thing with Elodie in this relationship, she's really letting Abby open up and question everything because women back in this time were still very oppressed, despite some of them, a lot of being educated and whatnot. But still, a lot of women, they were being oppressed during this time. And the fact that Abby's now having the opportunity to speak her mind and question everything and someone actually listening and understanding. 
I, I find fascinating how they're touching upon that. Yeah, I mean, I will say that, although with women being oppressed at that time or with society just sort of holding women in, in, in a different social class at that time in, in work, work-wise and education-wise, et cetera, um, Abby is or was the kind of woman who was more than content to be in that position and who sought that position out in her decisions in life. You know, yes, it was forced upon her. And maybe you can argue, hey, she never knew any difference or she couldn't have known to be her own person. But she also kind of actively sought that position out continuously in her life and has in this show continuously. And now Elodie comes along and screws up something good. And I'm not saying Abby shouldn't be enlightened. But I am saying that the way Abby is being enlightened is not enlightenment. It's manipulation, and that's not healthy. It's, it's yeah. two wrongs don't make a right. I agree. It's definitely, we know Elodie's a manipulative person to try to get things her way. But also, Abby's just, she's allowing this to happen. And, uh, and I, what did we think of the book, the, the Buddha, Charles Baudelaire's book? And I'm going to butcher the title, I'm sorry. Because um, I am American, but the title "L'étranger," 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 strange. Cool. I, the stranger. Listen, I studied French for four years in high school, just like Abby. It's cool. All right, um, <laughs> you should have no, <laughs> pronounced it then. Listen, the book to me is the same thing we've just been talking about. Mm-hmm. You, you're manipulating Abby. If you're Elodie, you are manipulating Abby with the book. And the book is just your, oh, it's so artsy, it's so philosophical. Like, what's the point of life? Like, this is morality, it's such a deep thought. That all might be true based on how you interpret the book, but just because you make her read a stupid book doesn't mean she can come out. It takes time to get enlightened to these things, whether it's women's issues or marriage problems or whatever it is. Elodie is just using the book as a convenient excuse to, to sort of entrap Abby into this situation and kind of push her in the direction she wants to push her. It's the, it's the most biased, most objective. If Elodie had, had Abby's best interest at heart, Elodie would be going about this in a much more objective, calm, cool way. But Elodie doesn't have Abby's best interest at heart. Elodie's horny. Like, let's, let's call it what it is, yeah, right? Is. Elodie wants something. Elodie's selfish. Elodie's pursuing it. She's like a predator. It's true. It's very predatorial, but and I'm going to just being devil's advocate here, but also she didn't force Abby to read the book. Abby wanted to read it on her own out of sheer, oh, sheer curiosity. Oh, sheer curiosity because when her the, the friend returned the book, um, Ida, when Ida returned the book, and she just did paraphrase the book. Oh, it's about being happy and there are no rules from you know, keeping us from happiness and whatnot, which is, you know, the lives that they're living are absurd, which was enough to make Abby want to read the book on her own. But that's the thing. Yes, she didn't she didn't hold a gun to Abby's head and force her to read it, but she put all the tools together and let Abby put the gun together for herself, okay? she, she The peer pressure of the friend coming over, I'm not saying that that was staged, but the peer pressure of the friend coming over, everything that Elodie has been buttering Abby up with, all the discussions about morality, all the physical things they've been doing anyways, and now Elodie knows that Abby feels guilty about what they've been doing physically. So, oh, let me give you a smart philosopher's take on how that this isn't actually something you should feel guilty about, Abby. It's so convenient. I know she didn't force Abby to read the book like at, at knife point or gunpoint, but through psychological stuff, 
she did force Abby to read the book. She pushed her down that road knowing where she was going to go. So Elodie's totally guilty on this one for me. I hate Elodie, if you can't already tell. I am not a fan of Elodie. I can tell. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But also, I have to just question Abby for allowing all this to happen because Abby's perspective, I'm I'm seeing it through more, more through Abby's eyes that because when she returns the book back to Elodie after she has read it in practically a day, that she wants to be happy. And the fact that she came to a realization being with Elodie would give her happiness. What did you think about them going to the bedroom? Well, I, she's not happy with Elodie, but she doesn't know that yet. I, I, you're right. And she Abby wants to be with Elodie at least right now. I love that Abby does deserve a lot of the blame, too, because Abby puts herself in this situation, and she could have walked away at any time, and she didn't. Um, so you're mm-hmm. right, but Abby is of a certain mindset and of a certain temperament that Elodie knows she can just walk all over her. And, and I think Abby going to the bedroom with Elodie again is, is searching for happiness and desperately searching for something because she feels pushed away from her husband because her husband's working all the time and is distant and all this other stuff. And so she's looking for something, and, and she's not going to find it with Elodie, but Elodie is convenient, and she doesn't know it yet, and Elodie's a smooth talker. So Abby... Yeah, maybe Abby not is, happiness right now, but maybe just satisfaction for the time being. I think it's, I think it's just companionship. We, we've all seen those people who always have to be with somebody because they yeah, can't codependent. be alone. Codependent. Yes, and, that's, and that is Abby in her life. She's always been with Charlie, so it's worked, but once you start just having a little crack you know, a little fissure in the in the foundation, you have to go to the next person because you always need to be with somebody because you don't like yourself. And that's what Abby's going through, and Elodie is just there as a companion. And Elodie knows that because she can read people pretty well, and so she can get what she wants out of Abby, knowing that Abby isn't going to leave, even if she says she is. She's not going away, at least not for a while, and Elodie can take advantage of her. So, yes, Abby deserves some of the blame. The problem is I don't think Abby's self-aware enough to realize she deserves some of the blame. That's and I don't know if she it. ever will be self-aware enough. That's the issue. Yeah. I mean, maybe we'll see more episodes with Abby's character growth and the understanding of everything that's going on. But, again, Abby doesn't have a lot of life experience, so she can't see in that perspective. But yeah. I – no, I and get And Charlie – and she has no – she has no uh, – relationship with Charlie to the point where they could ever talk about this. He's not going to help her with this, so she's on her own. Yep, that she is. And we'll find out more about that. But uh, in the meantime, Team Implosion, Frank's team, they're they're on the up and up. And, well, at at the beginning of this episode, I find it very um, funny, but a little bit sad that Team Implosion now have janitors literally in their office area and they're being de- downsized and degraded to working into the broom closet which makes them even lower in in this project totem pole at that point then why don't you just give up on them if you're oppenheimer why don't you just give up on them i don't understand that you know i know that they know what they're doing is right but oppenheimer doesn't believe them so why not why not just cut them out yeah and it's to the point where they can literally say everything that they're working on in this project without these random guys in there just worrying about anything that they're going to say because it shows that no one's listening to them. No one cares. Yeah. And, and then, but we also see Frank. He goes back to Lazar talking about detonators. And he brings Charlie this time. 
And I think this was smart because now we're seeing Frank is really taking a liking to Charlie. That I think they've come to the mutual understanding of each other. Yes, they started off on the wrong foot, and but now they're at the point where they're willing to work with each other. And to, and also, Frank is now even complimenting Charlie, saying he's a really good scientist. Yes, he's young and he plagiarized a little bit, but he's smart enough and he knows what he's doing. Well, I would say, too, I looked at this a different way with Lazar, because you've got Glenn, who found Frank's notebook and realized that Frank was working with Charlie. You've now got Helen on the inside with Charlie transferring over from Frank. Mm -hmm. and, th and those two guys are close to Frank. Helen and Glenn are close to Frank. Lazar is not close to Frank. I know that they're developing a relationship, but they're not best buds. They're not, they don't have a history. And now Lazar has seen Frank working with Charlie, which shouldn't be happening. So... What you've got now is Frank bringing other people in as witnesses to see him and Charlie colluding together. And like what Glenn talked about, they're going to hang him or they're going to put Frank before the firing squad for something like this. And I think Frank is really, really endangering himself, his team, and the entire project by, by kind of publicly working with Charlie, going to Lazar. What if somebody gets to Lazar and says, what did you see? Did you see these two guys together? You know, what's, what is Lazar going to say? I think it's a huge risk Frank is taking. And, yeah, the relationship's developing between Frank and Charlie, and that's fine. But he's also really risking literally his life mm -hmm. by kind of publicly going out places and working with Charlie like they're on the same team when, they, when they're not and they shouldn't be. Well, also, to that point, Charlie's also risking a lot working with Frank. It's, it's yeah. the, it, every, And I like the fact that, uh, you know, Babbitt and, you know, Glenn Babbitt is questioning everything because he's asking all the questions the audience should be. He's the voice of the audience. And I love that self-awareness. But also, I am willing to overlook their risk because Frank knows it. But he's to the point, and I say it time and again, that he is willing to go to any lengths to get this project working. Yeah, and he, be he, doesn't, he doesn't care anymore. He doesn't care yeah. what what happens. He can probably talk his way out of whatever. Maybe that's true, but I have a feeling he's going to get in a situation that he can't talk out of. Yeah. You know, he, he was lucky to get away from Paloma's situation, and that was a non-work-related thing. But he was lucky to get away from that. It'll remain to be seen if he can get away from Colonel Cox when he really finds out what's going on. Yeah, I mean, that that I think that might be into predictions. But Frank does have this realization about his project, Team Implosion, and the Mor Monroe effect. For all you don't know, the, Mon um, the famous scientist Monroe, he was the one who uh, wrote the theory that if you can shape charges, the shape effect charges that um, was now that's now created in bazookas, and he, Monroe had the first idea of that you can sh shape, uh, shape charges, and then Frank used that to apply it to the atomic bomb. I thought that was very smart. Yeah, I, 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 again, it's just such a quick epiphany after weeks of telling us that this couldn't work. I'm just a little confused about how, you know, quickly they come up with these things. I don't know, it just, something doesn't add up with the way that the kind of, the timeline of the, of the story just doesn't add up on this to me. <laughs> well, in, in fairness, it wasn't really quick because they've been banging their heads against walls for how many months now? 
and now it might yeah, seem quick remember, once they realize something and they add more to it. Yes, that was very fast, the realization about this one particular thing. But sometimes that happens. Yeah, but, but just the only thing I'll say is just remember, you know, uh, an episode or two ago, we knew, quote unquote, that a implosion absolutely would not work and all the math was done. But then it's like, oh, the Brits are quitters. Hey, what if we do this? <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> yeah, and... I love the the line the Brits are quitters, but we're not because we're American. Uh, and they had the realization for they want synchronized detonators, and they have to have a concave implosion instead of a convex. So pretty much it implodes on itself inwards. And what do they use for that? How do and they realize they need to use baritol, which um, burns at a slower rate and then create a shaped lens that, I mean, it went very, very technical, but pretty much they rea realized the physical aspects that they need to adjust on this bomb to have this um, successful effect. I can't wait to see if it actually works. I can't wait to see a bomb get tested. That's all I want. Yeah, I mean, the, Bobby, you said that it kind of bothered you how fast that they figure that out. What bothered me more was how fast Helen figured that out. Once Charlie said Baritol, that was it. Or yeah. no, no, Helen said Baritol. Charlie said shaped effect, shaped implosion. And then Helen figured it out within milliseconds. That's what bothered me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great point. That is a great point. I'm, I'm just the whole thing's a little, a little suspicious to me, but whatever. I mean, the show's but fun. It moves, and everything it moves works, the story. So yeah, it moves the story along. We're definitely progressing forward now. After a couple weeks ago, we just took five steps back. So now we're moving forward. They're having, they had their breakthrough. And Helen had that celebratory kiss with Charlie. What did you think of this? I, I didn't read too much into it because the way Helen reacted, she moved on to the next thing and kept thinking and stuff. And the way Charlie reacted, he kind of like smirked like, you know, really, dude, are you kidding? So I took mm -hmm. it as just kind of a little awkward, funny moment that could maybe add some levity. I didn't really see a spark fly. I don't know about you. Okay. And judging on the way that Charlie reacted, on the way the actor reacted, it wouldn't surprise me if Helen, the actress who played Helen, did that totally on her own to take a chance or if the director told her to do that and they didn't clue in Charlie. Because his reaction to me was so, he almost came out of character. It was so genuine, he kind of gave her a look like, dude, are you kidding? <laughs> like, yeah. it, would, it wouldn't surprise me if that was something that was totally unscripted and totally unrehearsed, and that's awesome. Yeah, I, I think it was exactly that, something that they threw in. Literally, in the heat of the moment, they got excited. People do things that they don't expect, and I think it was just, it was funny because we know, we've been questioning the relationship, but to add a kiss to that might elevate it, might not change it whatsoever. I think it didn't change it. I think it was just a case of them being so happy about, you know, finding out this implosion thing. She, she's been working her whole, you know, she's been working for months on this, and it was just one of those quick releases. I don't read too much into it. Yeah, but what we're reading into is Liza and this... So Liza's working at the hospital now, and we saw last episode she has the Geiger counter and she's checking out the babies. Everything is radioactive. But so she's working at the hospital, and these men come in and they're getting scrubbed down because they're contaminated. What they're contaminated with, 
We don't know, but Liza has to help clean, and she's questioning everything. She even brings the Geiger counter home to question the radio, the radioactivity of the area, and she's finding some things out. Well, I'm interested to see, is she finding things out? Because here's the question. She's, she, 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 she finds things out on her own, but then she turns around when Frank's there and the Geiger counter doesn't work. So mm-hmm. is Liza going crazy? Why would it not work? What was going on? It, I think the point Liza now, she's hysterical and she's saying things she wants to see but aren't there because she's burning Frank's clothes and she thinks everything in the house is contaminated. But when she goes to check everything again, it's not working. But we see at the very end of the episode, Frank is giving her medication. That says Liza Winter. This was prescribed to Liza. And it yeah. was methylphenidate and barbitol, which is actually medication for mental disorders. And it, it helps with uh, emotional um, balance and chemical balance uh, of the body. So that goes back to the episode where Liza failed the polygraph test for a mental... Um, they were questioning her mental stability. What did we think of this re- um, revelation, I guess you can say, that well, Liza used to be on medication? What is it for? That's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm a little worried that Liza, who we kind of took... We, we sort of took... Um, I guess at face value for how intelligent she was, how good of an investigator we was. We said great things about her last episode. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, wait a minute, Liza. Are you, are you crazy? Like, are you, what's wrong with you? Well, <laughs> so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say crazy. Worried. That's not really the best medical technical term to call this. But she's definitely suffering some serious chemical imbalance. She's probably tired, so sleep tep- deprivation, which causes anybody to and question their mental stability and just the radioactive um, symptoms that's going on. So I think it's like a trifecta of a million different things um, that's adding. So my question is, what have we seen Liza do in the past that was really Liza or was that just what Liza was seeing? And, and that's and a great happening. question. We don't, we don't know what's true and what's false. We don't know what's rational and what's insane you know we don't we have no idea anymore with Liza I can't really take I can't really take any any um I I can't take her face value anymore I don't know I don't trust her character anymore because we don't know what's real and what's fake with her I know that and that's the thing because I think everything we've seen with her now I just have the question did someone kill her bees or did the environment kill the bees or did the bees even exist in the first place? I mean, it, exactly. so many things are happening right now. I th- and I've, we, we had that quick shot at the hospital when the water is literally pouring outside the building into the ground. We know that goes into the flowers and everything. She was testing flowers that didn't work and she was questioning that. So it still begs the question, what's real? What has Liza seen that isn't real? And what have we seen that is? Whew, goodness. I, I guess all we can do is wait. Yeah, and I mean, let's go into predictions. I mean, I think we're there. And now, your After Buzz TV predictions. Okay, speaking, we're still going off of the Liza. Do you think it is, we know that she's questioning everything now, but what do you think 
her mental condition is. Is it bipolar? Is it schizophrenia? Is it any type of mental disorder? I I don't know anymore. I think she has a condition. She definitely has a mental disorder. She's going, you know, insane in some way, in some regard. She's not a sane mind, and I think now we see that, and um, and, and I can't trust her anymore. I just can't trust her anymore. No. Uh, what else do you think is going to go down with uh, Team Implosion? Ooh, um, I think Team Implosion... I, I, I think Charlie and Frank are going to get caught by the wrong person, and somebody's going to have to pay a huge price for this. Or they're going to get caught at the right time, and they're going to prove that they have the answer, and all's well that ends well, right? If they can make the bomb, who cares? Um, But but the wrong person's going to come across them and catch them, and and I think you're looking at a significant penalty unless they can make the bomb in time. I I agree. I predict, because we do see in the previews, um, for next week, that Tom Lansfield is trying to get find anything on Charlie to take him down and get to that power of um, position of power to take over Charlie's job. I think Tom Lansfield is going to get answers from Charlie, whether by force or by just happenstance. And I think Akeley is going to get suspicious of everything and realize that Charlie is working with Frank on this. Because once Akeley comes back into the picture, he's a smart enough dude to realize that all of his men are working on implosion. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And I will throw in one miniature prediction at the very end here. What about Callie and all of her forward sexual whatever ways? If she's 18 or whatever, I don't know how old she is, but what about Callie and Elodie? Hmm? Mm. That that would be really interesting. That might border um, statutory rape. Well, but that's the thing. Wouldn't that make Elodie even more of an unlikable character than she already is and even more of a predator? Or if Callie is the one who seeks it out, whether Callie seeks out Elodie or Abby? I don't know how they would come across each other. I don't know what would happen, but it's a small base. It'd be a weird twist of fate. And Callie is of the mind to maybe do something like that like we know that Elodie is. So, who knows? I mean, I, I think we questioned that before as well. But that would be an interesting storyline. I don't think they'll take it there, only because they're building so much upon the Abby-Elodie relationship now and Kelly and yeah. Dunleavy relationship. So I think well, keep those Charlie, relationships Charlie's got to find out one day. Listen, Charlie has to find out about Abby one day. That's coming to a head, too, so get ready for that. Absolutely, and things are literally going to explode, pun completely intended. <laughs> All right, Bobby, as always, it's been fun. Where can everyone follow you to keep talking about this amazing show? Uh, tweet me. Get on Twitter. I am at Bobby DeMuro. And you also do Snapchat, Snapchat too, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. You can snap me if you want to. Same name, Bobby DeMuro. There you go. And you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram. You can follow all of us here at AfterBuzz TV on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all those fun platforms. Don't forget to rate and comment on iTunes and also comment on YouTube. We read all the comments. We love it. You guys are amazing. Thank you, WGN, for this awesome show. And we will see you next week for Manhattan. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. 
I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Buzz you later. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.